Don't wait to start. Like I said, there's never a right time to start a business and don't be afraid. People think they need money to start businesses. It's absolutely not true. You need a, obviously a little bit, but you can start. You can start somewhere. You can go to, you know, Home Depot, make your own prototype. It doesn't have to be perfect, but you could sell, if you could sell your prototype, you're fine. You know, with um, platforms such as crowdfunding and Kickstarter, you can essentially raise your whole product product without barely putting up any upfront capital. So I hate the excuse that I don't have any money, I'm not funded, or I don't have time. It's actually the worst excuse in my opinion. It's the one you hear most of because you can make time for anything. You know, if you get home after work and you'd rather watch three hours of Netflix, that's that's the time right there, right? So I always say just just dive in, make mistakes. It's very important to make the mistakes early while your while your risk is essentially nothing and you're not making big mistakes later. You know, make the mistakes now and uh, you'll learn real quick whether or not you want to continue or, or not. You know, And I, I highly recommend just uh, not waiting. Welcome to The In Factor. I'm Rebecca White and today I'm joined by Avin Samtony. Avin is an entrepreneur with a knack for launching and expanding consumer products. With a proven track record in both the B2B and direct-to-consumer sectors, Avon brings a wealth of expertise in sales, product development, marketing, and e-commerce. On a beach trip a little over a decade ago, Avon and his business partners were robbed while taking a quick swim. Today, they've turned that terrible day into a thriving business that helps millions of people keep their possessions safe. Join us as we delve into Avin's entrepreneurial journey, his insights into launching and expanding consumer products, and his experiences in identifying and creatively capitalizing on growth opportunities. So Avin, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so I'm really excited to learn more about your background. Um, you're new here in the Tampa Bay area where I'm located. Yeah. And I know you've been here a couple of years and uh, we were just talking about it. It's a great city and lots of entrepreneurial energy here now, um, which I can say having been here 14 years hasn't always been the case, but it's a really amazing place to be now. Thanks to a lot of people moving here like yourself who are <laughs> adding to our entrepreneurial community. So I know you're from, I think you said you grew up in New York or you're a New Yorker. So tell us a little bit about your background. Have you been an entrepreneur, one of those people, were you an entrepreneur at 12 years old and uh, yes <laughs> selling and no. lemonade? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, actually not. Um, I came from a whole, you know, my, everyone in my family has been an entrepreneur. No one's ever worked for anybody. But uh, I actually grew up in Hong Kong. Uh, I lived there for many years, so I was 17 years old. And I moved to New York, went to college there. And I actually was in the uh, commercial and residential financing business, you know, we, with a lot of big developments in the city and just kind of private money uh, deals. Uh, had no kind of background in, in any of this. Um, long story short, we, my two partners and I were at a friend's wedding in Miami Beach. And, you know, we we're at the pool kind of hanging out and we put our watches, our valuables in our, you know, under our towels and our shoes, kind of went for a really quick dip, stayed within reach, kind of constantly looking back at our stuff. And within a few minutes, we came back and everything was gone. You know, oh, it was boy. like a total <laughs> nightmare. And, you know, it was a, quite a bit of, uh, you know, jewelry missing and we, we caused a little bit of a scene. We were very upset about it. And, um, we couldn't stop thinking about it. You know, we went back in the ocean and we said, how's there no safe on these chairs at these really nice resorts? And I kind of went back to when I was a kid traveling with my family. My my mom always had to always stay back and, and watch us all go in the ocean. And people had to always kind of take turns or peek back. And I've learned that this is, hey, this problem has not been solved yet. And uh, my two partners and I, we couldn't stop thinking about it. We started drawing stuff on a napkin that day. We had no background in consumer products or product making at all. We were all kind of in the finance business. And um, we just couldn't stop thinking about it, put it that way. We got back from the wedding and uh, just kind of went full force, you know, just start thinking of names, ideas, and that's kind of how it all started. And uh, it it's pretty much continued since then. 
So yeah. that I love that story because yeah. so many entrepreneurial ventures come out of a personal need, right? Right. And uh, and you've certainly identified one. I know how that is. I mean, we live here in a beach community around water all the time, and that's an area where you can't take your valuables into the water with you, but somebody has to keep an eye on it. That's, that's, right. that's a great story. So tell me how that, well, so there's a lot of things I want to dig into. First mm. of all, um, you know, growing up in Hong Kong. So what, how has that affected you? And, and was, uh, did you have a lot of family there or was yeah. that was, so your entire family was there? Yes. My, my mother's side, um, we're all there. They're in the garment business. So they had, um, they produce, you know, t-shirts, kind of just all type of garments for larger retailers in the UK and Europe. Uh, so we were, we were there for a long time, you know, by, I speak Cantonese, my whole side of the family speaks, you know, Cantonese. They've always kind of just been in that manufacturing distribution type of business. So yeah, my whole mom's side, pretty much my whole mom's side was there. I mean, they're scattered along the UK and, and places in Europe, but you know, pretty decent concentration in, in the Hong Kong area. My brother's still there, but I grew up when it was still British under British rule and it was a very different place than it is today. Uh -huh. Um, so I'm a big city guy, if, if you haven't noticed. So Tampa is is definitely new for me, but I love that it still kind of has that urban suburban feel. Uh, it's funny because whenever I talk to people here, I say I'm in the sub suburbs and they laugh. They say, this is not the suburbs. I said, for me, it is because you know, <laughs> I live in a house and there's trees everywhere. It's the suburbs. But uh, yeah, I'm just a big city person, a high energy, you know, Hong Kong and then New York City. It's uh, just too, you know. <laughs> very, very uh, high-paced cities for me. Yes, so, yeah. And, yeah. And quite different in the sense that we have to drive everywhere here yeah. in Tampa, which is, is kind of tough if you're used to having uh, you know, transportation and walking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, it kind of, I just recently spent some time in, uh, in Italy and we just, you know, we were walking constantly and you feel so good when you're doing that's that. Right. So, but well, okay. So that's really cool. So you, you had role models who, um, you know, on both family, on both sides, Correct. Mom, yep. mother and father. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so you had role models, which we know is a big influence on entrepreneurial mindset and starting companies, but you also had a problem. So tell us how that first company went. What happened with that? So, um, so that's a company I'm actually still in uh, today. Okay. So funny enough, uh, to go back to that, we didn't know anything about, you know, starting a business, especially on the consumer side, whether it's production, you know, patenting, just everything. So we kind of dove into it. Back then, 3D printing wasn't a thing yet. So we needed to make a prototype. We went on YouTube, started learning how to do some stuff. And one of my partners has a contracting background. So he kind of figured out the whole 3D printing of our prototype. And we were all doing pretty well with our current careers. So we didn't want to just completely disconnect and say, all right, let's do this. So we gave it a little bit of time. We filed a provisional patent just to kind of lock the idea up. So once that was issued, we found out there was an inventor's trade show in Pittsburgh. So we said, all right, let's, let's just give this, give this a shot. Uh, let's gauge the interest before we, you know, completely just kind of dive in. So we made a 3D printed version of our original Aquavault box, which we still have in our in our office, and we took it to this show in Pittsburgh. And I mean, we were the talk of the town. It was just super busy, and we just saw like, hey, this is a really big opportunity. Everyone stopped by and said, this is a wonderful idea. I've been through this. Nothing's ever been done, you know, because you could be on a cruise line, you could be at a hotel pool, uh, even just swimming to the pool bar. You can never kind of go together without feeling that thing. So we said, hey, you know, especially after that show, the interest just completely sparked our, hey, let's do this and let's, let's kind of just start. So we started the whole production. We thankfully, you know, the internet is just such a great place. And we, we met a few people at the show, some manufacturing uh, partners over there. So we started there, but eventually, you know, we outgrown it. But that going to a show like that definitely helps you kind of get exposed to everyone you need to kind of meet in one one roof. That's why I'm a huge fan of trade shows, because you're getting everybody in that particular industry in one place for a few days to kind of just get all that information. Uh, so we created our um, prototypes and we started selling them. And that's basically, we were strictly focused on that B2B model. We wanted our product to be at every hotel, resort, theme park, and you know build out kind of a recurring revenue model from there. 
never did we think we'd be in a position now where we're you know doing e-commerce, we're doing retail, we're doing so many different things. But our sole focus at the beginning was to get into that B two B space with the hotels. Yeah. So so uh, I think I read that you're also doing direct to consumer now. So we do. Let's talk a little bit about. Uh, there's so many things I want to dig into there. <laughs> a lot of great <laughs> things in your story. But while we're on it, let's talk a little bit about selling B2B uh, versus selling uh, D2C, I guess, uh, yep. DTC, direct to consumer. Um, what, what are the differences there and how did that transformation happen? So the transformation happened when we started getting, you know, we had one product solely for the commercial sector. And we were getting tons of emails saying, hey, this product product made my vacation so great. I was had a peace of mind. Can you create a, a portable version that we could take on our travels? And we started getting it so much that we paid attention. And we created what's called the Flex Safe. It utilizes the same IP as our AquaVault Safe. And it's a like a level five cut resistant um, bag, which is made out of a, a grade down from Kevlar. And... Um, we started selling that online and it just completely took off and dwarfed the sales, you know, of our, of our other product. And it just started really taking off for us. And we said, Hey, this is a great market. Let's start selling it to the end user. And with us going D to C, uh, I mean, B to B, we never had that consumer data when we never knew who the consumer was. We know it was someone staying at the property, but we didn't know who they actually were. So by going that e-com route, we were able to now know who our customer was capture the data, use them for future, you know, launches of other color variations or new products and just kind of always have that database, which has been great for us. Um, B2C is great from a customer service standpoint because you're not dealing with the consumer directly. You're dealing with the one, right. you know, hotel yeah. and it's over. Um, you know, direct to consumer is challenging from a customer service standpoint. And from the beginning, we had no employees in our company until only about four years ago. Uh, we did everything ourselves from answering every customer service email to going to every trade show to just, you know, quality control, control of all our products because we wanted to learn kind of that whole uh, mailroom model, right? Where if you start at the bottom, you understand every role and you, you kind of can't, you know, it's easy to finger, finger, finger point when you've already been through it and you've done it. So we just didn't want to kind of pass that key on to anybody else without learning it. So by by doing that, the, the the direct to consumer side for us has been way better. Quite on, quite honestly, we want to focus more on that now because you're getting paid immediately. You know who your customer is, and you know the scale is massive on that. And sadly, a lot of these bigger hotels they take a long time to pay, and they have a lot of different you know return models, and it's just more of a yeah customer service disaster sometimes dealing with all that where. You know, we've just seen massive success on the direct-to-consumer side now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I can see that. You know, that in, in most instances, it's easier to have fewer customers than who who buy more each time right. they buy. Um, but I can understand in your case, you know, that what I love about what I'm hearing from you is how much you and and uh, and your business partner listen to the customer, and I'm sure that's part of the culture of your organization. Mm-hmm. Do you have any um, any insight, you know, for our listeners um, about this this whole process of listening to the customer? You know, how do you know when to take that next step, and and where do you all look for information now? Well, there's so many opportunities to get feedback now. Yeah, I mean, getting customer feedback to us has been you know everything because we you know let's say we want to launch a new variation or a new color we actually reach out to our existing customer base with you know basic poll just to get their idea you know you know as them being the current customer there's no one better for that you know data than than them directly but knowing your customer is super important because they're the one actually paying for your product they give great advice we've had someone say hey could you add this to your product could you add this it's just another idea but getting that feedback is totally instrumental to the growth of the business and because and, you can't really find that anywhere else, you know, the consumer typically always goes to that. And uh, I'll touch on to how we raise money later. Like one of the methods, it's kind of the same way. It's going to the customer, uh, going to your actual people who value product, buy your product. They're going to be the biggest supporters. You know, they're your biggest fans. So uh, just going directly to them, you know, has always been, you know, successful for us. 
do you all do you all use a lot of social media to talk to your customers or do you do you use more direct mail or do you um, use uh you know trade shows yeah. are great for b2b how do you talk yeah. to your your uh direct uh, to sell customers? So for our uh, customers online, we do like a monthly newsletter, email, we do tons of email blasts. Um, we do have social, all of them, Pinterest, you know, Instagram, uh, Facebook, TikTok, etc. We just started on the TikTok thing about a year ago. Uh, and that's actually been really good. But yeah, we're pretty active on our socials. And uh, we talk back and forth with our customer, we tend to reach out after a product's been shipped just to kind of get their feedback on it and how we could be better. Uh, you know, basic things like that. But we try to stay engaged with the customer as much yeah. as we can. Yeah. You know, one of the things I'm hearing a lot um, is the power of going back to the email list, because mm -hmm. with social media in flux and things changing, and you, you could you could lose your customer base, you know, if one of them goes out of business or there's some other issue with them. And we're seeing a lot of that happening now, a lot of, a, a lot mm -hmm. of potential issues. So what are your thoughts? I mean, I love that you have a newsletter and that you do direct to sales have, have, uh, or direct to customer through email. Have you also done any crowdfunding or used any of those platforms? We did. So when we launched one of our, uh, we started just kind of on a shoestring budget. We had no funding. We did all of this on our own, which I think is a huge plus to anybody because you're way more careful. You know, you're doing things the right way. You're scaling the right way. I know plenty of fr friends that were flushed with capital day one and lost it all because yeah. they just thought, yeah. let's just throw money at every problem we have and we'll just find someone to fix it. And that's a terrible mistake. Um, we learned from the ground up by going on YouTube, 3, 3D printing our own products just to kind of understand, you know, and when it's your own money, you're just way more cautious about everything. Um, so ultimately, the crowdfunding thing, when we wanted to create a larger size of our FlexSafe product, we actually went on Kickstarter and Indiegogo just to try it out because we said, hey, what other platform could be better than for us to, who are essentially getting prepaid orders? You know, the risk is zero for us. We're getting, we're, we're testing the demand right now. Is this, is this product going to be successful or not before we even make it? You know, and the best part about that too is you're getting feedback along the way. So if someone says, oh, does it have this? Does it have this? You can kind of think about it because you haven't produced the product yet. You can say, hey, that is a good idea. So you can take all that data from thousands of people and create almost the perfect product. And your risk is, like I said, zero because you're not committing to any capital you know, production until uh, the raise is over. So we actually successfully, I think we did, I think over 800K on the raise, which was amazing with no marketing. You know, This is like when crowdfunding first started we were super you know happy with that outcome we came out of pocket zero for everything and we already had the customers to deliver you know the first round of product to so you know i highly um encourage things like that especially if you're operating on a on a lower budget because the crowdfunding it's it could be your way out too to dodge a bullet be like hey this is not a good idea you know or you just think think of things someone else brings up that you never thought about so I highly recommend crowdfunding um, and, you know, um, Kickstarters and all that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great marketing tool. And it is. I think not everybody thinks of it that way, but it's a fantastic way to communicate. And as you pointed out, get, you know, you raise money, but make yeah. sales and, uh, and uh, get feedback all at once. Yeah. You're so, going in zero risk, you know, yeah. which is nice. Yeah. And, which is you know. what entrepreneurs are always mm -hmm. trying to do, minimize that risk. <laughs> you know, speaking of minimizing the risk, you all started this as a side hustle, or at least that's, I'm going to label it that. I hope mm -hmm. that would be correct. And so you were both still working full-time? Uh, yeah, there's three of us. We were all still working. Or three of you. Um, okay. Yeah, three total. Uh, we we're actually all college, you know, buddies and, you know, fraternity brothers and, you know, very close. So it, it really made it easy for that trust factor for us. But I, I'd say we only stayed working for maybe two years. Um, you know, once we had a full production cycle, we did our first show actually in Orlando. It was a, you know, first proper trade show with real product. And uh, that's when we said, all right, this is it, you know, because it's kind of an all or nothing situation with with any business. If you know you have something else to fall back on, you're not going to be as aggressive and, and motivated. So we all made a pact that, hey, let's do this. And, you know, we took very, very small salaries and, you know, it was painful for a long time. But, you know, it slowly allowed the business to grow. And, you know, we stayed committed to it. and We're still committed to this day. 
Yeah. So, so, you know, it's interesting because at one time, you know, we always advised entrepreneurs that we were working with, you know, you got to cut the strings and be all in and be committed. Mm -hmm. But, you know, side hustles today are more and more popular, I think. Uh, A lot of people, especially since the pandemic, people working from home are working on a side hustle, you know, and, um, you know, it can be a way that you can get things started. What, what was, um, what triggered that transition? Like, how did you know when to quit? It was just the commitment. You know, with certain side hustles, as you mentioned, if you're, you know, say, for example, a copywriter, social media person, that's pretty easy to manage with with another full-time gig. But once you're producing product and and, and needing to scale it and get it out there, et cetera, it just requires a little bit more of, a, I think, an upfront commitment. Because we did the old school way. We we went door to door to every hotel. You know, we walked into every property we sell to that we sold to at the time, waited for the GM, waited for the recreational manager, actually talked to them, get their feedback, showed them the product. So it was never emailing. It was never, well, we did a lot of calling too to get appointments, but a lot of it was just walking into every, uh, I'll never forget, it was one summer in the Jersey Shore. We were up there for a trade show in Atlantic City and we had a car full of vaults and we said, let's just go down the shore and you know hit every single hotel. And it was just one of those really awesome experiences where you know, we were just getting new accounts constantly. And then some random uh, article in Norway came out about our product that we didn't even know about. And we were sitting in the car and our sales were just flying up online too. So it was just one of these moments where, you know, we had a car, uh, a car load filled with vaults going door to door. And, you know, people don't do yeah. that, I think, anymore. But we're very hands-on. And I, I think you couldn't do that managing. It just depends what kind of business you're in. But we're, you know, in the financial business, it's very, you know, a lot of employers are not going to really allow you to to take that time off and do Go all drive that. the so, Jersey Shore yeah. and sell. There was sell, no work yeah. from home. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, and, yeah. and uh, but I, I love the story and I love the hands-on and the fact that you and your partners were down in the nitty gritty because that's so important. Um, you know, it, it, it's, you find out things that you would never know otherwise. And that's true. I started a company a number of years back and, and uh, by doing the finances myself, at least in the early stages, my partner and I were able to learn, you know, some big mistakes we had made in our bid process really early, you know, um, and it, it could have killed us actually because our customer was costing us more than we were making, but we didn't realize it because right. you know we were digging into things uh, and on a real intimate level. So, um, you know, I think we all have those stories. And the important part is that you were out there getting that feedback, feet on the street, figuring it out. And um, so I want to ask you about the patent process because, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of entrepreneurs that we work with, uh, and that I talk to are, you know, trying to get a product developed. And um, did you use uh, expert, you know, ex- did you, how, what, how did you go through the patent process? Did you figure that out sort of on your own and then yeah, bring we, in attorneys or? We, well, we figured it the provisional part on our own. It's pretty basic uh, to do a provisional. It's pretty, pretty basic. I think especially now with the chat GPT stuff, you could probably do it pretty well depending <laughs> yeah. on how, how, you know, complicate complex the uh, product is but for us we kind of did it on our own the provisional once that was granted uh, it bought us that one year you know kind of hey do we still want to do this or not but it locked our idea in for for a year and we retained someone you know someone professionally to do the actual patent now we actually have nine issued patents and we have eight trademarks granted so it's been an amazing process I would not I would advise any you know listeners out there to not be you know, discards or deterred from applying for a patent. Provisional is pretty simple. And if there's any way I can ever help, I'm happy to connect with your, you know, with your viewers as well, especially development and, you know, anything on the consumer space. Uh, it, it is challenging, but it's not as challenging as people think. You know, it's, it, I always say you have to just dive in and start, right? People always say, I'm waiting for the right time to start my business or, you know, maybe in a few years when, when time's right. There's never, a correct time, right? You can ultimately start. That, that's always my advice. You can always just start start right now, you know, whether it's a name, whether it's anything. And yeah, I mean, the patent process is definitely, I think it really scares a lot of people when they hear the word patent, but the provisional part at least buys, buys you that one year to think whether or not you want to continue to pursue and because the actual patent will cost you some some money. 
you know, to actually file. Yeah, yeah. And even more importantly is protecting your patent down the road. Have you had any issues uh, with patent infringement? We have, yeah. Uh, It was actually more trademark infringement uh, with one end on us. And we've actually sent multiple cease and desist for for our patents. Um, There's people selling on Amazon. You know, that's one thing we really just can't stand is Amazon allows a lot of these, you know, third party sellers in in China or wherever to kind of sell the same exact product as yours, even though you have an IP. They've cleaned it up a lot now. And if you submit your patents, they push them off, but there's still just never ends. Um, We've had to defend it uh, twice. We've won both times. One larger company actually tried to, when we were still young, tried to muscle us and say, hey, we will, you know, even though we had the trademark, they said, well, uh, we want your trademark. We deserve it. And we'll license it back to you royalty free forever, but let us own it. And most people would just cave and say, oh my God, because it was a quite a big company, uh, a known company. And we said, no, you know, we kind of just battled it for three years and we ended up winning. And it was wow. a great, great feeling. But, you know, we couldn't use our registered mark for the three years, even though we had it granted. Was once that a trademark infringement? It was a trademark, yeah. yeah. But once now, an opposition starts, you know, you yeah. kind of have to wait. Uh, did that put your company at risk at any time in terms of money? You know, the cost? Not really. To, oh, um, good. Yeah, I mean, we, we had someone that we committed. Um, we didn't want to do a retainer. We didn't want to do an hourly. We kind of negotiated a flat fee and a success. You know, hey, if this works out, we'll do even more later. That's another thing I definitely want to touch on is the way we structure our deals. It's performance base for as many things as we can do. Uh, lim- lim- limit our outside, limit our capital as much as possible, outlay as much as possible when it comes to even online ads. I know I'm deviating from, from the question here, but that's something I definitely want to touch on later. But um, yeah, no, as far as the patents, I mean, you know, the old saying, your patent only goes as far as you can defend it, right? And uh, it's really just there as a layer. It does keep a lot of the the third party, you know, China sellers out because they're not going to try to fight you for anything. But, um, you know, it's nice to have, it's nice to have put it that way. Yeah. 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 And of yeah. course, if you're being acquired down the road yeah. or anything, it's always, oh, it's an asset value. that adds value. Mm-hmm. So, I, I, you know, I'd really like to dig into, uh, you've mentioned a couple of things about raising money and funding your company, but also about deal structures. So I'd love to hear about both of those things. Let, let's start um, Let's start by talking about deal structure because we were kind of on that. And mm-hmm. you said, you said uh, negotiation, I guess, is a big part mm-hmm. of um, mm-hmm. what you've learned to do or what, what's been a, bit, a big part of building your company. Let me just put it that way. So, so let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So most people automatically think, you know, when you start a business, you need to spend on everything. Everything just costs, right? You have to hire X, you have to hire Y, you have to hire Z. And sadly, a lot of these people come out of the woodworks and email you, I can do X for you for this amount of of money per month, whether it's a new social media person, whether it's a SEO person, they're just trying to, they reach out to thousands of people in hopes that, you know, 20 respond back. Yes. Or just not as familiar and they pay a pay a retainer. That stuff really adds up, and we are victims of that too. Um, we thought, no way, let's just find people who are aligned with us for mutual success. So eventually, over time, we came across, you know, we were we were able to kind of like spot um, mutually success, like um, people who are aligned with our basic success, right? So we presented a lot of rev share deals, which to us made a lot more sense. We laid out no money up front. And we were paying on a guaranteed sale. So the commission structures were higher, but our risk was zero. So we were only paying on a conversion. And to us, that was like one of the biggest parts of our success, I think, early is that we didn't, a lot of people pay for all this traffic with no conversions. And you're paying for tons of ads, tons of eyeballs, but you're not, you're not guaranteed a result, right? I could pay you a $5,000, you know, doctor, for an email list you may have. I might get one sale out of it right? To me, that's a total loss versus me aligning someone, whether it's a micro influencer, whether it's somebody specific to travel. Uh, you know, moms, funny enough, are our best market, you know, our, our top customer, our moms. I mean, moms are the best, right? They ultimately buy everything. They buy everything. And their, their, uh, their stamp of approval is, is everything Means to, a lot, to most yeah. consumers. Yeah. So, you know, we, we go to those kind of micro influencers and not so much people with huge following, they're going to charge a ton, you know, and a lot of the reach, it's not really there. So by going to 
someone with a dedicated kind of cult like follower base, you know, you're getting just uh, a lot of the times they just want product too. And they say, send me your product and if they like it and we work ref share deals ultimately is, is what I'm trying to get at is whether it's our marketers, whether it's our influencers, whether it's our um, like our online affiliates, it's strictly performance based and we pay much higher commissions, but we're guaranteed our sale. And that is just a massive, um, that was a big turning point for us because our balance sheet, you could see where a lot of our expenses went, but now it's, it's so much more in line with what comes in versus what goes out. It's not one-sided, you know, it's, Paying for a guaranteed sale, I would do that all day long. You know, um, I think anybody would at the end. Yeah, so yeah. That's something Share, I definitely. Yeah, sharing the risk, basically. Exactly. And, and that, you know, that's at the end of the day, you know, people say, oh, entrepreneurs are risk takers. But the reality is most entrepreneurs that succeed spend a lot of their time figuring out how to minimize risk. Exactly. <laughs> um, it's not that they're will not willing to take on some when it's necessary, but the goal is to minimize risk. And. And I love how you did, you've done that really all along the way based on, you know, our conversations and the way we've talked about things. And, um, and uh, you know, you were talking about that those people, for example, I get them every day because people find my podcast and they say, we can help you get yeah. more viewers. And, you know, and it all, I mean, LinkedIn has gotten to be kind of bad for that. Oh, yeah, it's every <laughs> yeah. day. Yeah, yeah, every day you get those. So, um, you know, I think entrepreneurs have to be careful about that because those nickels and dimes really start to add up. Oh, and yeah. that, you know, that takes us a little bit to funding. So I know you started this while you were on a shoestring, while mm -hmm. you were still working. So you bootstrapped it. Um, did you at any point take external funding? Uh, have we you did. Okay. Yeah. So, so for the... Yeah, go ahead. So for the first, uh, I'd say three to four years, we took no outside capital. We did do that uh, crowdfunding raise, you know, for the product, which allowed us to kind of pocket, you know... Keep the operating account kind of flush, and also pay for that run of uh, um, our, our first run of product. But then after that, we were looking for money. We I don't know if you know, we actually went on Shark Tank with our first yes, year in yes, sales. Yes. Yeah, it was back in 20, 2016 or twenty fifteen. We went on we went on with barely you know just not even a hundred k in sales at the time. And so we went on you know thankfully with realistic valuations, no pie in the sky kind of numbers. And you know we walked out there. We ended up getting offers from pretty much everybody. We ended up getting a deal with Damon John, who's still very active today. He's more of a friend now than anything. I that I got the privilege to work in his office for many years in the city until COVID hit and everyone kind of scattered. But so I had to really, thankfully, I got a lot of hands-on advice from him. And, you know, he's been a great mentor to me as well. And um, so he came on. We raised another round after with, with an angel and then later on, what we thought was the best route is instead of going to VCs, we had you know a lot of meetings with venture guys, and it just wasn't kind of the speed we were you know trying to trying to go with, and uh, very controlling. It's kind of the total opposite of what we were looking for. So we wanted someone strategic. We weren't looking for you know a bag of money. We we're looking for both. So ultimately, we decided crowdfunding was actually getting really popular. And we said, let's just give this thing a shot. You know, no one's going to beat us on a value. Uh, we're not going to have people controlling us. Let's let's try this out. So the way we looked at it was, you're essentially getting tons of brand ambassadors, right? Who are going to not if they're investing in your product, they're going to be talking about your product all day long to everybody. That's like human marketers for your company. So we ended up doing really well. We raised, I think, just under two million dollars. And uh, we have that, you know, thousands and thousands of investors that are now, you know, that got our product as one of the perks in addition to some, to some shares. So now you have all these people out there in the world pushing our product, doing everything, using our product. And to us, that was just a home run. You know, we didn't have to give up much equity. We didn't give up control. And now we have, you know, thousands of brand ambassadors out there who genuinely love the brand that invested in us, you know, put their hard-earned money into investing us and and growing you know, with us. So I thought, I think that's still, I don't know how, how popular it is these days, but, you know, I was talking to people at the center, I was talking to Bert and uh, Tom about it. I think it's such a powerful platform to use. People get discouraged because it's a ton of work. It is. You have to go out, you have to market it. You have to go reach out to your network. You know, you have to go out to events. You have to send emails out. 
you know, you're putting yourself out there. Absolutely. Instead of the kind of more private route via VC, you got to check. But what you get out of it, we think is just far outweighs just, you know, a check. You're getting all these people willing to help you and uh, people actually using your product versus, you know, just a checkbook. Yeah. So we highly recommend that. Yeah. And probably out there selling your product when they can. Exactly. Exactly. You know, because they they have a vested interest in it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, No, we've we've had uh, because we do a lot of custom branding on our products now, too. That's been a, a huge market for us. And we've had customers, you know, investors. I'd say, hey, you know, I work for X company. We'd love to do custom units for you guys. And they end up being orders of, you know, all the way up to 10, 20,000 an order from just our current, you know, partner investors. So it's just super powerful to have, you know, all these people at your disposal to say, hey, I'm creating this new product. What are your thoughts? You know, we do updates, investor updates. And it's just these people are actually giving you the feedback you'd like to hear. Yeah. Yeah. It's again, back to what we were talking about earlier with kind of owning your communication to your customer, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, like an email list, you, you, well, you now have their contact information directly. So you're not, you're not dependent upon a social medium out there to, you know, another company to do that for you. Yeah. So that, that's really powerful. I think, you know, one of the things I love as I've heard you tell your story is how you've been creative. Uh, all along the way. And, uh, you know, creative problem solving is something that I think is very valuable for all of us, but especially in the pursuit of an entrepreneurial venture, because you're really experimenting all along the way. I mean, it's a big experiment. You're testing your hypotheses every day. And, uh, you know, I think you, you pointed it out earlier, too much money too soon, uh, can kind of get in the way of that creativity, mm-hmm. but having to be creative along the way and thinking creatively, even after you're at a point where you're not, you know, you're not counting every nickel and what well, you're always probably mm-hmm. doing that. But, you yeah. know, it, when you get out of that real, those really early challenging times just to remain creative is sometimes hard. Um, so I'm really curious about you and your partners. How many years have you all been doing this now? This will be our 10th, our 10th year. 10, 10 years. So yeah. are all I mean, actively selling, I'd say seven, but yeah, the business has been open for 10. Yeah. And so, um, and still three partners, still three. Yeah. And three so of us. talk about that a little bit. I know you were college friends and yeah. all of that before you became business partners. That doesn't always work. Um, no, it doesn't. I, <laughs> <laughs> we're so thankful for it. We've actually mentioned it several, you know, several times over the years that, we're kind of always on the same page. And if we're not, you know, we listen to each other, but I'd say 99% we're on the same page across the board, which is, I mean, you don't really find that. And, you know, we think that's even the investors that have come in and, you know, they notice that right away. They, the team's still together 10 years later and you guys still talk to each other all day. You know, it's, it's strong. And, and I think that's, I mean, and don't get me wrong, as you mentioned, Yes, we've gotten creative over the years, but it's been hard. Like every journey, you know, it's a called the true roller coaster. Every entrepreneur kind of goes through. We've gone to down to three dollars in our bank account, all the way up to you know high seven figures. It's just it's crazy, right? It just it's a true roller coaster, and you have to take risks, especially on on consumer products where you have to kind of put up the inventory and and eventually you do have to roll the dice and say, okay, uh, you know, I'm taking the risk here and and I'm trying this out. So. Uh, think creative, thinking creatively, I think is just the most important. And you have to kind of put yourself as the consumer and say, Hey, what would I want? You know, communicate with them as you had mentioned. And funny enough, now I'd say 80% of our business is direct to consumer. You know, we're constantly releasing new SKUs because we're going out to the same customer. We've already paid to acquire that customer and we're using that same uh, customer over and over. We have so many, you know, repeat buyers, which to us, it, you know, it, it's it's a good sign if you're getting repeat customers back. And um, so since since that first product, we've created a total of seven products now. And, you know, they're all under the Aquaball company umbrella, but they're all different brands. So our most recent product, Charge Card, um, if when I see you, I'll definitely bring you one. It's a credit card. So during COVID, I'll kind of just go back on something. During COVID, we were terrified. Yeah, we're I was going to ask about that. Oh, yeah. yeah. Travel-based business coming off the best year we've ever had. Uh, COVID, you know, travel-based business, everything came to a halt. We're talking no hotels, no travel. It was terrifying because, you know, we we're sitting on a ton of product. What do we do? You know, no one's going, no one's traveling. And there was kind of no end in sight. No one knew what was happening. 
So we were obviously a bit nervous and uh, we said we have to, you know, this is a sign that we are just too concentrated in, in one space, which is beach, travel. God forbid something ever happened to that space, you know, we're toast. So that's when we said, hey, let's try to think of an idea, another product that stays within kind of travel and our consumer, but is not focused on travel. It could be anything, you know, that you could use in your everyday life. And we were looking around and there's just bulky charges everywhere. And, you know, we always like to say the best charger is the one you have on you, right? Not that big bulky brick with wires sticking out. Yes, that's great for certain purposes when you're, you know, at the airport, et cetera. But ultimately the best charger is the one you're out on the town, you're low on battery and you just need enough to get home, need enough to call your Uber, need enough to just pay your bill or anything. So we created um, the charge card. It's a credit card sized charger that actually fits in the slot of your wallet. And it has the uh, cables built in and it comes fully charged out of the box. Nice. That product, you know, everyone's like, oh, charger is such a saturated market. Like everybody needs one. Every single person still needs a charger today. And, you know, it charges every device. So we still went with it. And that product's done more for us than any of our products combined. And it's only been out for two years. So it just goes to show just how strong that is. And, um, you know, we just had to pivot. That was our pivot point for us. And now we still sell that product to the same customers with the hotels, the theme parks. They're all offering it now, too. At, whether it's their gift shops, whether we have certain hotel chains that put them inside their rooms, kind of like a mini uh, bar yeah. item. Because yeah. you know, let's say you're in Vegas. These hotels are huge, right? You don't want to go up to your room to get your phone uh, after charging it. You're walking 20 minutes. So uh, they put them in the rooms and you can just take it down with you. We put their logo on it. And, you know, they're constantly replenished every time a housekeeper goes in there, you know, to take it. So there's so many different models. We're now used, leveraging those same relationships that we've built, but just new products. So, yeah, I, I just think pivoting is really important and not to get scared and kind of to go back to the money thing. And I'll never forget, I went to this meeting when someone was trying to raise capital because we were learning how to raise. And I went to this kind of investor um, meeting and this guy was pitching his business. He was doing barely any sales, but his overhead was, his burn rate was the most insane thing I've ever seen. Automatically went for a huge office, tons of staff, you know, all the bells and whistles with barely any sales. And I knew this, this company was done, you know, and it made me say, wow, a lot of companies do that. They get the checks and they just run with it. Um, it's crazy because to this day, we have just two virtual employees and the three founders still. So we contract a virtual employee to do our customer service and we have one doing our social. That's it. Wow. But as far as sales, we still handle it. We have, you know, sales agents and distributors around the world. But as far as like, if you were to reach out for a large order, you would be talking to one of us uh, yeah. three. So yeah. I just think, you know, being hands on like that is still really important. Um, you know, you, you, get, you, you get to take your temperature of the business really often and see, hey, what's going on here? Where can I cut? You know, what's working, what's not? And in this kind of business where there's so many new kind of ways online to, to do well, we do like a ton of um, affiliates. Affiliates for us has been great, you know, especially during Q4. We do a lot of email lists of, hey, these are the top products, top travel products, or the top this. There's just endless ways uh, to, to kind of start, get creative, and find ways to do that with the newsletter. And yeah. You know, there's a lot to be said. I mean, there are times when companies have to expand and bring on a bigger workforce, but there's a lot to be said for the lean and mean model. And, um, you know, you mentioned COVID, which was in the pandemic, which was something I was going to ask you about because we all had to stop traveling. And, oh, yeah. um, and, and I, have a, I have another related question around that. But, but the reality is because you were lean and mean, it probably didn't affect you as much as it could have, you know, if you had had to. I mean, and even right now in this economy, I talk to C-suite people all the time and everybody, the big companies, they're all streamlining. They're all cutting mm -hmm. back because of, you know, the uncertainty that the economic uncertainty and, uh, you know, when you're lean and mean, it, it's, I guess, a little easier to, to deal with those. Now, I know that every pathway to success has some failures and challenges along the way. Have you had any product failures or company failures or, 
um, you know, outcomes that didn't work out the way you wanted them to. Um, and, and, you know, can you talk about that? Because for, you know, many of the entrepreneurs that I work with and talk to, that fear of failure is looms really large mm-hmm. for them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, we all have families, small children. So that, that failure part is definitely, you know, nerve wracking to say the least. But I'd say product failures, we've, you know, b- being new in that space, we created products that didn't really some something we missed out on completely where we did a huge production run and it wasn't what we were supposed to do and it came out wrong. So those are failures absolutely there, not testing enough or finding out certain restrictions with batteries and kind of going in. It's not really f- fully understanding all of that. Um, I'd say also fail. I mean, it's tough because we've ran such a kind of conservative operation for so many years and it, and it kind of just started, you know, hockey sticking for us after um, everything was kind of put in place. But I'd say during those years, we were just so careful that, you know, the biggest fear for us was really just depleting all our capital because we really didn't have any. We were using, you know, we had to each send our own wires in, you know, to fund the business. And we were taking no salaries. We had business, you know, we had uh, families. So it was definitely stressful. And I think our biggest fear and uh, failure was just, I don't think, I think the fear was just going insolvent, really. It's just not having enough money to, to continue. So I had a question for you, you know, back in, uh, in COVID, I'm on a, a public company, a boat company, mm-hmm. Marine Max uh, board. Okay. I'm on their board. And, you know, we did really well during COVID because people could get out on boats. And I know mm-hmm. RV sales did really well uh, because people could travel sort of separately. So my question for you is, have you, uh, do you have products that, uh, you know, for the boat or the RV industry? And have you looked at that? We do. We actually uh, sell to a lot of marinas where people put their keys in our in our flex safe instead of it just sitting, you know, in a drawer somewhere or in a cubby. Uh, so we've worked with marinas. We have waterproof uh, dry bags. We have waterproof phone cases. We have uh, our flex safe locks onto the boat. So you know, a lot of times people aren't stealing on boats. But if you go to you know big parties on boats in the water, or you just don't want your stuff just laying around, it's just secure in the event it falls over. But we have safes for boats. We have waterproof dry bags. We have, you know, chargers when you're out in the water, things like that. But yeah, we've worked with a, a decent amount of marinas. We used to go to the boat show a lot pre-COVID because boaters are always on the water, right? At the end, they're kind of perfect for a product. Not so much the safes, but for the the waterproof phone pouches, fishermen love them. Um, so we sell a lot of our waterproof phone cases to water parks and, yeah. and boaters. Yeah. You know, yeah. when my husband and I were, uh, were uh, on a, you know, longer term cruise on a sailboat, mm-hmm. we used to be sailors, mm-hmm. we're now power boaters, but okay. uh, we used to be <laughs> sailors and we were down in the Caribbean in a part of the Caribbean where it can be, you can have pirates, um, you know, on mm-hmm. come on board or people come on board and steal. And I know that the people we were with, they were on a much longer term cruising and they had like you have your wallet that you share, your your hidden wallet, and then your real wallet. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think there could be some opportunity, especially on cruising yeah. boats, um, you know, for something that uh, maybe yeah. that could be disguised, you know, and uh, and hidden away. But uh, yeah, no, absolutely. yeah, yeah. I'll just throw out that little bit of information. No, no I love that. No. Knowing, I mean, these folks, they had three sets of wallets, basically, because if somebody came on board, you didn't want to fight with them. You wanted to give something up. Right. Just give but it they to also them. knew that that wasn't the real one. So they would say, OK, give me the real <laughs> one. So you had to have a second one. But then you had the third one <laughs> hidden away because a lot That's of the cruisers actually are living with a lot of cash because they're moving around. Yeah. So um, right, that's it's kind true. of an interesting data point. Yeah. We sell to the cruise lines. We sell to a few of the larger cruise sure. lines and they've done really well there, the safes, because especially on excursions, you go out, um, the flex safe is really a perfect product for that because you can't just slash through it if someone's walking by and it can go on your belt. It can go on a kind of a um, strap, you know, a crossbody kind of strap. And it's a perfect thing for a family to fit their their phones, their wallets, their keys, et cetera, in there. Uh, sure. Yeah. So that's yeah. that's definitely been a great product. Yeah, for that. and people are traveling more and more. I mean, everybody. Oh yeah. Everybody I know was. I mean, we. My husband and I went to Europe. I think everybody I know uh-huh. has gone this year. So, that's wild. Yeah, yeah. we're all getting uh, back to it after <laughs> after COVID. So. Uh, tell me what's next for your comp- you and your company. I mean, where are you headed? I know you're thinking about the future. 
Yeah, so we are launching a f- two new products and um, we're potentially looking at a possible acquisition. You know, we've been entertaining. Uh, it's it's bittersweet because that's every, you know, entrepreneur's kind of dream at the at the end, but it's also something we built. So we're waiting for the right, you know, strategic there. And uh, so that's going to be exciting. That's definitely on the horizon. But for now, we're creating some new products and um, just continuing the the growth trajectory there, you know, staying within the product line. And eventually what we just want to build is, is a big travel security kind of company. And we're onboarding more hotels day by day um, using the product, cruise lines. Uh, we just signed on with the largest cruise distributor. So eventually our products will be on every cruise right now. They're just on two cruise lines, but they'll be on all of them just going through the distributor. And uh, yeah, we're just super excited, you know, and especially... Me being down here now, uh, you know, in New York, I wasn't really around water until the summer. So it's definitely nice to be surrounded by water here and, uh, you know, meeting a lot of great people, including you and, you know, everybody else at, on, on the board. And, uh, yeah, just super excited for what's Yeah, next. well, just really excited to, that you're here and excited to hear your story. I mean, this has been a great conversation. So many Thank of the you. students and so many of the young entrepreneurs that I work with are thinking about products. So there's a lot that they can learn from this conversation. I always ask my guests, what's your one piece of advice that you would give to an aspiring entrepreneur? Maybe what you wish you knew or, mm-hmm. <laughs> or something that you've learned along the way that you'd be uh, willing to share. Yeah, I'd say don't wait to start. Like I said, there's never a right time to start a business and don't be afraid. People think they need money to start businesses. It's absolutely not true. You need a, obviously a little bit, but you can start. You can start somewhere. You can go to you know Home Depot, make your own prototype. It doesn't have to be perfect, but you could sell, if you could sell your prototype, you're fine. You know, with um, platforms such as crowdfunding and Kickstarter, you can essentially raise your whole product product without barely putting up any upfront capital. So I hate the excuse that I don't have any money, I'm not funded, or I don't have time. It's actually the worst excuse, in my opinion. It's the one you hear most of, because you can make time for anything. You know, if you get home after work, and you'd rather watch three hours of Netflix, that's, that's the time right there, right? So I always say just just dive in, make mistakes. It's very important to make the mistakes early while, you're, while your risk is essentially nothing. And you're not making big mistakes later. You know, make the mistakes now, and uh, you'll learn real quick whether or not you want to continue or or not. You know, and I, I highly recommend just uh, not waiting. Yeah, that's that's, that's really thing. great advice. I think yeah. fail fail fast, right? <laughs> it, fail it'll fast, teach you yeah. something, and then you keep going. And and it is about passion and drive. And and I, I see is. a lot of that yeah. with you. And uh, um, I'm. Thank it's, you. It's wonderful. This has been a great conversation. Where can our readers Thank you so connect much, with you? I mean, our yeah, listeners, so, uh, <laughs> our readers. <laughs> uh, so I'm on LinkedIn or Facebook, Instagram, or email. My emails, you know, Avin Samtani, the number one at Gmail. Um, and, you know, my socials are just my name. So happy to connect with anyone who has any questions regarding, you know, scaling their business consumer wise or patents, et cetera. In any way I can help out. Avin, thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to learn more about entrepreneurship, we would love it if you hit that subscribe button. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of InFactor.